The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, Frank Latuka, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Friday edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics program, February 5th, 2021. This is your old boy, Justin Robert Young, joining you yet again from Oakland, California. We got a hell of a show here for you. I got something in my craw. I do. It's... It's a media story that's really a story about truth and the Capitol riots and AOC. Specifically, the reaction around her live stream where she was telling her story about it. It bothered me, and I want to explain to you why it bothered me, and we'll get to it. It's a whole thing. We also have our mailbag, and we are joined by the one and only Tom Merritt from Daily Tech News Show, our UK correspondent. Although, I will warn you, if you are looking for conversation about the United Kingdom, you will not find it here. Uh, we We go pretty full on about the state of technology and the intersection With politics, we spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the GME stuff. We talk about uh, Robin Hood, talk a little bit about Clubhouse, and of course, Jeff Bezos. Not stepping down, right? People have been saying this is stepping down. Technically, he gave himself a promotion. (laughs) He is stepping up to the board, but whether or not that comes in reaction to what I will imagine is going to be a very annoying several years for a lot of different tech CEOs, including from Amazon because of antitrust investigations. But This week, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez addressed her followers on Instagram. She discussed her story from the January 6th Capitol riots. The stream lasted over an hour, and as most things AOC does, attracted a ton of attention. Among the headlines, AOC described her reaction to a loud pounding on her office door. She described hiding in the bathroom and believing in that moment that she was going to die. Literally. Not having a fight-or-flight moment simply, but rather coming to grips with her position in life, identifying her legacy, and being at peace with no longer living. She went further 
to say that those who would attempt to move past what happened on January 6th are using the same kind of tactics that abusers use. Something she added she has lived with as a victim of sexual abuse. Critics of AOC, legion though they are, immediately shot back that she was exaggerating her tale. In one Fox News write-up, South Carolina Representative Nancy Mace, whose office is two doors down from AOC, said that protesters never breached the office since they don't work in the Capitol Dome, but the Cannon House building across the street. So I ask you this, dear listener, who is telling the truth? Answer, everyone. In fact, this is a very unique situation where I believe everybody that at least I've been able to see in terms of the the, the eye of this storm is ble- being completely honest. And the divisions are being driven completely on partisan lines with a media more interested in clicks than the truth. Before we dive in, a fair question that you might be asking. Why, Justin, are you even covering this? This is a back and forth, a tit for tat, red-blue gossip that you normally avoid. And that is true. But this story matters to me for two reasons. Number one, the Capitol riots are a visceral crossed line that I very much hope represents a high watermark in our vitriol toward each other. That being said, it is very important for me personally that we get our facts right on this event because as history moves on and we develop shorthand, it's going to obscure What should, if we find this to be as seriously as we say we find it, clear and understood facts. And number two, I want to point out to you that the media has learned nothing over the last four years. And in my opinion, will forever continue to gaslight you based on your confirmation bias even when the issue that they are talking about is something as important as rioters physically storming the Capitol. First things first, this is what AOC said. Her entire stream is on her YouTube channel. If you want to hear everything in context, go there. But obviously, in the interest of time, I'm only presenting the highlights. Some important context here. AOC spends the first 30 minutes of her live stream building up to the day in question. She says that she got word from other congressional sources that they should expect violence on Wednesday. She describes the strange feeling in the air on Sunday, all the way through the fateful Wednesday. She's concerned about the lack of Capitol Police's security plan, which she describes as being nothing more than a couple aluminum railings that you would see at a small-town parade. She describes an encounter with a group of MAGA supporters in the parking lot of the Capitol where she attempted to joust verbally but left her feeling less than secure. But for me, most telling is her description of a trip to the grocery store around her apartment. 
On successive nights, she describes seeing Trump supporters and feeling an uneasy vibe. On Monday night, she describes being eyeballed by customers and feeling unsafe. Her specific description is a bodega at one o'clock in the morning when you're sure somebody is about to get jumped. At that point, she no longer feels safe leaving her house and doesn't accept to go to her office in the Capitol. I mention this because I don't believe it can be separated from the rest of what she says. AOC is telling a story of a woman who feels the temperature rising and is feeling less and less safe in places she should feel safe. Which brings us to the day in question. AOC goes to her office in the Cannon building. She goes to another location, presumably in Cannon, but she's not specific, to get her second vaccination shot. She returns to her office. She feels bad that her legislative director, G, had to come in because everybody else in her office has been work from home and decides to order a big lunch for them. It is while she is scrolling for lunch that there is a loud knock on her door. When all of a sudden I hear boom, 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 boom on my door. And then I hear these huge, violent bangs on my door and then every door. She's terrified. I just thought to myself, they got inside. She's told to hide by G. She does. She says that she in that room comes to peace with death. And like also one of those thoughts that I had was, you know, I just happened to, you know, be a spiritual person and be raised in that context. And I really just felt like, you know, if this is the plan for me, um, then people will be able to take it from here. There's more pounding. AOC hears a voice yelling, where is she? that she describes as aggressive. G eventually tells her to come out. The man that was banging on the door and yelling, where is she, is a Capitol Police officer. According to AOC's description, he is less than friendly. Because he was looking at me with a tremendous amount of anger and hostility. AOC and G are told to take tunnels to what I'm surmising through corroborative details is likely the Longworth house building next door. That we can like hear all of these rioters behind the glass of the doors. <laughs> you know? AOC says she believed that the Longworth building was breached, but she doesn't say that she sees anybody. And um, I'm at like a 10, right? Like I am at a full 10 fight or flight, thought I was going to die like 10 minutes ago, then thought I was going to die again because I have to tell you that when I was banging on this door, I had thought, fully expected, that by this point the building had been breached and there were people walking the hallways. Like this is this was what I had fully expected. She just uses that as part of the description of why she was as terrified 
walking through the Longworth building as she was. She says that she can hear the rioters outside. At that point, she shelters with California Representative Katie Porter. Okay, so let's take a breath here to establish some facts going forward. The Capitol Dome, that's what we saw rioters run into on January 6th, is surrounded by several federal buildings and offices. So picture in your head the Capitol Dome in the center. And actually, if, if you're if you happen to be by a piece of paper, then then go ahead and, and walk through this with me. Otherwise, just picture it in your head. Just draw a circle in the center. That's the Capitol Dome. What we're going to do is go from top left around the Capitol Dome to the bottom right, kind of like a backward C around that circle. And here's how it goes. In the top left, there's the Russell Senate building. To the right of that is the Dirksen Senate building, then the Hart Senate building. That's where senators have their offices. We then head south or down. The U.S. Supreme Court is directly behind the dome, then the Jefferson building of the Library of Congress, and then one down from that is the Madison Library of Congress. And now we head leftward from south of the dome. The Cannon House building is next to the Madison Library of Congress, then the Longworth House building, then the Rayburn House building. All of these structures are connected by tunnels. Google Maps says that the Cannon building if you were to walk from there to the Capitol Dome, is seven minutes. But I bet you could probably get there faster if you knew the closest exits and the nearest entrances to the Capitol. So those are the facts. That's what AOC said. That's the layout of the buildings. There is no question that the Cannon Building is not the Dome. There is no question that the vast majority of the rioters that were there were in the Dome. But what fascinates me is the backlash to AOC. Most of the backlash boils down to some version of AOC is either lying or exaggerating the situation in which she described. AOC herself tweeted a picture of a tweet from conservative firebrand Jack Posobiec saying that she wasn't near the riot since she was across the street. As I mentioned before, Representative Nancy Mace pointed out that her office is two doors down and rioters never broke in to the Cannon Building. And I will repeat again what I said at the beginning. Everyone here, by my reviewing of the facts, is telling the truth. Representative Mace's office is in the Cannon Building. The Cannon Building is not the Capitol Dome where the rioters stormed. And AOC was not in the Capitol Dome during any point of her own telling of the story. But here's where it gets even more twisted. Representative Mace, that tweet, she wasn't even calling AOC a liar. Her beef was with a Newsweek article that incorrectly described AOC's story as one in which rioters were pounding on her office door. But this 
is the headline that Fox News gave their story that aggregated Mace's tweet. This is the headline. AOC faces backlash as critics point out she wasn't in the Capitol building during riots. This is supremely stupid since AOC never said she wasn't in the Cannon building. And neither does Representative Mace, whose tweet is used as an example of the critical reaction to AOC. Now, If you wanted to criticize AOC for being less than kind to the cop who sought to evacuate her from the building, if you wanted to criticize the cop for lacking appropriate professional manner that heightened the panic in the situation, fair game. But that doesn't get clicks, does it? No. The clicks come when a famous politician is embarrassed or emboldened right or wrong because that's what scratches our confirmation bias itch what an embarrassment that they did what a horrifying act to even criticize her that's what gets us going the fact of the matter is is that at the time that the that cop was banging on that door nobody knew what was going to happen with that riot. Nobody knew what the extent of it would be. Even if you're going to take AOC at her word that she was hearing rumblings that that there was going to be violence, who knows how many times that's been said? Who knows how many times that's not happened? What we know for sure is what happened on January 6th was beyond what the world expected. Whether or not we should have is a different story, but it's beyond what we expected. And in the moment of it unfolding, there's no way for anyone to know whether or not it was just a bunch of bumbling idiots or an elite team of murderers there to wipe out senators and representatives. In my opinion... This isn't fact. This is my opinion. AOC has every right to be terrified here. In hindsight, we know from reports, investigations, and leaked data from the fallen conservative social media website Parler that the vast majority of the protesters stormed the dome and not cannon. In fact, in combing through the videos, the ones that have GPS data located next to the Cannon Building, seem to be videos taken elsewhere and uploaded by the building, probably because they got better cell service there. But again, it's totally beside the point to argue if the Cannon Building was stormed or not. AOC never claimed it was. It is inversely stupid to say that the Cannon Building was just as much under siege as the Dome. Because it wasn't. In fact, if you believe that this is the fault line of this argument, whether or not AOC was in the Cannon Building or whether or not rioters were coming into the Cannon Building or whether or not she thinks she was in the Dome, any permutation of this, then you have been gaslit. 
You likely did what we all do at a certain point, and you only paid attention to headlines, you filled in the rest, you auto-completed it in your head, and that is gaslighting by a media that is desperate for you to engage with their products so they can sell you Hanes underwear. Now here is what did happen. The reason that Capitol Police came to evacuate representatives from the Cannon Building, including AOC, was because authorities found pipe bombs targeting the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee headquarters. The RNC HQ is across the street from the Cannon Building. The bomb was discovered at 1 p.m., roughly a half hour before rioters stormed the dome, which perfectly lines up with AOC's own timeline of when the cop came to evacuate them. In specific, it was an unsuccessful attack on the Republican National Committee that led to that cop banging on AOC's door. Now, in the moment, does AOC know that? No. Does she have a right to be terrified? Of course. Does she have a right to talk about it? It's her IG. She can do as she pleases. But if we're going to take this event seriously, we need to know the facts. We need to care about them if we want to understand this event further. In my opinion especially if we control whatever part of the universe we control. If politics, politics, politics is to be a clearinghouse where we do care about this stuff. If you guys are are going to put your faith in me, your trust in me to care about this kind of stuff, then what I want to tell you is that it's important, important that we don't create weaponized shortcuts here. If we're going to try and build a better ecosystem for information exchange, facts matter. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I sure did. You can always email our little program, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Ron gets us kicked off. I must say I've been impressed at the dedication of our dear leaders to science over the past year. Most recently, there's the buku bucks that Biden wants to spend to make the schools, which science has already declared to be the safest possible place on the planet, even safer. So teachers can be the last profession in the country to go back to work once the five-year-olds have been fully vaccinated. Then there's Cuomo's secret unreleasable science data that proves every person in New York but him has killed a nursing home resident. And finally, there's Gavin Newsom's secret unreleasable science data that indicates in the last six weeks the effort to gather recall signatures against him He can suddenly free all Californians from their personal lockdown prisons because science. Do you remember when Einstein said E equals M? Wait, I can't tell you this. It's secret science data that would confuse and disturb you. I don't either. 
so obviously, uh, you know, that 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 is a partisan broadside, and and that can stand on its own. But I, I do want to kind of interrogate a little bit the concept of science as a brand, because I like to consider myself a a a, a worldly man. There were, there were times in my teens and 20s for which I wanted to describe myself uh, as, as a skeptic. And an evidence-based lifestyle was, was what I wanted to lead. And that brought me into contact with a lot of really amazing people, including Andrew Main and, and Brian Brushwood and uh, The Amazing Randy, where I, where I interned. Uh, it also brought me around a lot of other self-described skeptics, which led me to no longer associate with that community. And part of it was kind of science and skepticism as a brand. I remember one time I was at a, a skeptic meeting and somebody told me, oh, you should come to an atheist meeting. And my honest question, because he seemed like a nice guy, was what do you talk about? Because I'm not a godly man myself. He's like, oh, you know. I was like, well, I just kind of sounds like an oxygen meeting. How long does an oxygen fan meeting need to take? Hey, uh, y'all still breathing this oxygen? Yeah. Cool. I guess I'll see you next week. <laughs> I think that there is obviously a universal and human search for truth. When we are in chaos, that is heightened. We hope that we are not wasting our efforts as we are behind the eight ball, like we are with this pandemic. However, in my opinion... Good science is not done on coalescing behind a, a first draft and shaming those that might think that that's wrong. In fact, that's the opposite of science to me. Science is constant interrogation. And the truths that emerge from it are not done so by consensus. They are done so by uh hate <laughs> right like you are you, you are encouraging people to rip down these ideas and when they can't when they can't that's how you build on top of it so i i find it um you know one part worthless one part troubling when we kind of just clap at the idea of I follow science or in, in our modern flavor, like I follow the doctors because that's fundamentally useless. That's a useless thing to say. We don't want to fight, follow scientists or, or doctors. We want to find, we want to follow proven solutions or at least try solutions in the best way possible. And when they are not working, then go in a different direction. But 
I I personally I don't like science as a brand. And that might be a pedantic point, but guess what? It's my podcast. Chirpson writes, I was thinking recently, could a first-term president win re-election by not campaigning? It seems as though most presidents stop working and start campaigning halfway through their first term. Could someone just work the whole way up until the debates and go, hey, I've actually been doing my job every day and still win? If so, do you think they'd be winning in spite of or because of this decision? Chirpson, are you trying to find a strategy that I'd hate more than Hyde Biden? Because you might have just found a strategy that I'd hate more than Hyde Biden. Uh, in all honesty, if this won, it would be because A, the country was in a good place. And so, I mean, in, in a weird way, this strategy only wins if the politician was going to win anyway. The less you have to convince America that you're doing a good job, the less you have to campaign in general. So if you didn't campaign hardly at all, then, you know, you're, you're probably de facto doing a good job. I guess I would kind of set the line of campaigning at all around, like, Clinton running for re-election against Dole. I'd have to review that campaign because I only really remember it from like a few books that take place around it and my own memories. But in my in my head, he barely hit the campaign trail. Like he did a few things, but mostly he was just kind of talking about how good the country was because the country at that point was in a pretty good place. Matthew writes, I thought you did a pretty good job of explaining the GME situation in both your podcast and live stream, going into the details on both the media and the players. Two specific thoughts that bother me about this particular situation that I did want to share, however. One, it seems to me that the surge in price is over-attributed to Wall Street Bets investors directly. Though they are the catalyst, roughly 50 million shares exchanged hands every day over the last five trading days. I'm basing my numbers on Friday. At a rough median price of $150, we're talking about $38 billion being poured into buying that stock. There are likely institutional hands on the scale. The funds aren't on one side, and Wall Street is a big, big street. He's got another question, but I, I want to answer this. 100%, Matthew, I, I, I don't think that this is all average Joe retail stuff. However, I don't necessarily think that that's the same as saying that this is just Wall Street bets because I think that there are probably institutional folks and certainly there are now institutional folks that are watching Wall Street bets that are part of Wall Street bets. That is the great equalizer of the internet is that no one knows you're a dog. Number two, I have no love for hedge funds losing billions. But the concept of diamond hands is likely going to get a lot of people burned. The play only kills the funds if investors hold. But right now, they're sitting on roughly $20 billion of appreciation. When and if these funds cover, you will see an end to the buying pressure. A problem for any large bet. It's an unpopular opinion with the current exuberance, and I don't want to kill the buzz. 
So I'm writing after the 129 mailbag show, and I suspect this might be appreciated in hindsight. Uh, Matthew, I think uh, 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 your your take aged enough uh, uh, to perfection as I am recording this. GameStop is rebounding from a low of 87. That, of course, uh, is is a far cry from its high of four hundred and sixty nine dollars, <laughs> um, which happened uh, uh, only five days ago. So it has taken a terrible tumble since then, but it is now rebounding a bit. We'll see. I, I mean, ultimately. This was a bet. It came on Wall Street bets. So you can still make some of these hedge funds sweat, but, you know, I don't blame anybody who took their money out. If you have an ability to... You know, when that stock, which is way overvalued at 400, right? If you had an opportunity to take out that money and do some good in the world, and there are people that had life-changing money there, like just, you know, millions of dollars when they did not have millions of dollars before. I don't blame them for taking it out. I honestly don't. I, I, I get it. Let's punish the hedge funds. Screw them. That's fine. But to me, there's always going to be folks who understand that they can make a lot of money by being around the money. The market's always going to be a scuzzy place. If somebody gets, you know, some cash in a dark time, if somebody is able to to now all of a sudden have money to... to buy their kids some stuff or follow a passion or buy a house. That to me makes me a lot happier than, you know, making a bunch of rich guys cry. I like rich guys crying. That's fun. I like it. I just like the first thing more. Anonymous or whatever, right? Remember back in 2017 when the usual loop of people's interest in politics never died down? What if this stock situation is the thing that all media latches onto post-Trump? Like CNN has to talk about something all day, right? There's heroes and villains and winners and losers and conspiracies and hell. And, you know, maybe even Q gets involved. What if Hunter Biden is the mastermind behind this entire Wall Street bets caper? I don't even know what the party differences on these issues are. This chapter would be so much more interesting now that Trump's been written out for now. I don't know if this... I think we're already on the backside of this GME thing, to be honest with you. Because the stock cratered, and nobody really wants to talk about that. Nobody really wants to talk about how the bad guys win. So, you know, maybe we see another version of it, but the sequel's never quite the same as the original, right? And finally, Marlon writes, I don't often comment on podcasts. I usually just yell at my phone and go on with my life, but... Your mom made a comment, and you agreed with her, and it got me fired up. 
She commented that a year ago, Trump ignored the coronavirus and made it out to be no big deal, but that is not true. On January 31st, Trump issued an executive order blocking travelers' entry from the U.S. to China, or to U.S. from China. And the day after, Biden said this is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysterical xenophobia, hysterical xenophobia and fear-mongering to lead the way instead of science. Pelosi also criticized him for doing so. Dr. Fauci said on January 24th that both he and CDC Director Robert Redfield told senators that imposing travel restrictions was not a good idea at this time and averred it would create a lot of uh, disruption economically and otherwise, and it wouldn't necessarily have a positive effect. Now, I don't really care, as I'm not scared of COVID, and I understand Trump's view on it. I just refuse to be scared of something that kills so small a percent of people. But I also go skydiving, so maybe I have a lack of fear gene. Is that a thing? I've traveled 24,000 miles last year and never really felt concerned about it. I think there is something uh, uh, in certain mentality people that we just refuse to panic over a virus, and it's had another effect on me. I used to make fun of anti-vaxxers, and now I've become one. How funny is that? Lots to unpack there, Marlon. Number one, uh, my mom also goes skydiving. So uh, you, and, you and her got something in common there. Uh, let's start here. Um, the problem with Trump in general is that he talks a lot. And so if you are stitching together a partisan argument, one for or against, he provides you with ample tools. For every, he imposed a travel ban before other people said it was a cool idea to do so. There's a, if only we can shine bleach up our, or shine a, a flashlight up our butts and drink bleach. You know, th- for every uh, uh, shutting down European travel and, and everything that happened in early March... There's a, this is all going to go away like magic, and I I really hope that we're open by Easter. Trump just kind of talks a lot, and, and, and oftentimes the coherence isn't quite there, or was not quite there, specifically on this issue. And in a world of political uh, machinations, you've just got a lot to choose from to make your point. The personal thing there is up to you. You can dial up or down your own risk-taking on it. I, I think it's interesting that you even painted it like that, that, that you are saying you have a higher tolerance for risk. Skydiving is a risk. So if you are a risky person, that's... That's fine to a certain extent. I mean, obviously with this, there is a element of us trying to be together. Uh, You are not only a problem for yourself. You are a potential disease vector for others going forward. So... With that in mind, you you tend to have kind of two ways of looking at this kind of stuff. Number one, you can punish those that you believe 
are taking risks and exacerbating this problem. And Marlon, I your 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 defiant tone in this email gives me the impression that you've probably gotten a stern talking to by a friend or family member or Facebook over the last year. Or you can try and just express your general humanity. And and that to me is what I do. I don't do a lot of yelling at people. I don't do a lot of moralizing on on Twitter when it comes to COVID. Not because I, I necessarily blame people for doing it. I don't blame people for freaking out about this in the same way that I don't necessarily blame you, Marlon, for, uh, for, for being more of a risk taker in general, right? I can understand that we are bringing this kind of stuff to the fore of our conversation because there is a lot of fear and panic. You know, there there is a lot of uh, uh, a lot of death, a lot of disruption. People are gone permanently by this. Businesses are gone permanently by this. I I, I can totally understand why people are are having this kind of reaction, and I don't necessarily blame their manifestations of that. But that being said, Marlon, I do want one thing for for us before we go. Uh, get the vaccine. Get the vac. You're not, you're not winning a, you know, strongman contest by not getting the vaccine. It's a safe vaccine. All right, it's it's a good vaccine. I, I look. I would like to have a beer with all of you. Very soon. I would really like that. I would really like for everybody who's listening to this to be as healthy as possible as soon as possible. Vaccines are good. They have been good throughout society. So just, I'm not going to belabor the point. Marlon, baby, just get the vaccine. And that'll wrap it up for us this week. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Again, TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you heard me get on my high horse a little bit there at the beginning of the episode, but I do it out of love. I get frustrated sometimes, and I just really want... I just want to do better. I want to do better than where we're at in terms of our political coverage, mostly because I, I just find it lazy. I think that beyond the kind of market pressures that are on a lot of these media sites to to make sure that they get to certain click thresholds and the fact that we are just in a a very weird era where we we take politicians so seriously. Like and I don't mean like that that they're not important. I mean that we take their words very literally. I just want to build something that I would like. And that's what I'm trying to do here. If you like it, then then you can support it. Uh, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I was talking to a friend of mine who gets... He's on the $3 club where you can sign up. Three bucks. Gets you two bonus podcasts each and every week. They're about basically the length of what you get without the interview. 
uh, two more days a week. So you're going to get one on Monday, one on Thursday. Dr. Bird's here, by the way. And he had never listened to it before, but he just got on it. And he was like, oh, you want to know what? This is a whole different experience. And it really is. Mostly because those bonus episodes are a little bit more relaxed. They're, they're a little bit more... I know that I'm in, in the, the inner sanctum. So it's a little bit more of a hang. And I like that. You know, for example, uh, uh, the full breakdown of Liz Cheney surviving the Republican leadership push and Marge Green getting her uh, uh, committees uh, stripped from her. We went over all that on, on the Thursday one. You can get it right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $3 level. Download your custom RSS feed by going back to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Custom RSS feed. Put it in the podcatcher of your choice. You won't regret it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today is the host and founder of Daily Tech News Show. He is also a co-host, or guest host rather, and uh contributor, a friend, an all-around great guy. Just a swell bloke. Tom Merritt, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Justin. Hey, I just want to have you on the show more because I just feel like a, a consistent presence of Tom Merritt is better than a sporadic presence of Tom Merritt. And, and B, there are... I mean, I watched an interview today where Maxine Waters, congresswoman who is going to hold a congressional house hearing on this GameStop fiasco, <laughs> uh, was calling Reddit super posters in front of the government. So I feel like we've got <laughs> a, a tremendous bleed in uh, tech and politics right now. So let's start with GameStop from the tech side of this, what was the most fascinating part of it for you? Yeah, uh, I, I've got some some rather, you know, 30,000 feet views that I'll share with you. But I, I also have a very specific thing uh, that the Robin Hood CEO talked about on Tuesday uh, that I think might be worth pursuing if people are paying attention. But the 30,000 foot view was, well, this is interesting. The exact same thing that causes everybody to do an air guitar contest on YouTube in 2008 has now caused GameStop stock to be $300, which yeah. is a bunch of folks in an internet community feeding off each other and going, hey, what if we do this? Oh, that sounds great. Let's do that. Uh, you know, that combined with the ease of being able to trade, uh, especially with zero cost trading from apps like Robinhood and, uh, and a sort of general feeling of let's stick it to the man uh, that's, you know, it been in the air for a while. Uh, I was I was fascinated with it, but I wasn't really surprised. I also don't know if it's a huge breakdown in the stock market or a one off, because if the Internet has taught me anything is it's really hard to repeat a meme driven event. Yes. It's got to be different the next time. And so I don't think you'll get the same enthusiasm the next time one of these rolls around. So I'm not sure if we'll ever really see this particular thing happen again, even if they didn't change anything. 
You know, there's, and I forget where I mentioned it because I'm a, a overextended content, blown out content factory at this point. But one of the things, oh, it might be in this episode, in the uh, 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 email segment. But one of the things that I think goes into the discussion of these online communities is also realizing that it's not just the working class, you know, random Joe retail traders that are in wall street bets it's like on the internet no one knows you're a dog and right. and when people are like oh this wasn't just that this was a lot of hedge fund people it's like yeah they're also on wall street bets <laughs> like they're also hanging out there like, like yes there are some people that that don't plug into it but if you're a young financial financially minded person in anywhere between your your late 30s early 40s to to a uh, you know, just starting your career, you're probably on Reddit. You're probably seeing this kind of stuff. And if your job is to ride these waves, then yeah, there's going to be institutional money in this kind of, in this kind of stuff. But I, I, I do, I, I would say if there is a way to say this will happen again, it would be more because of that, because this might, what we need to culturally separate the idea that the internet is for the randos. And then there's the power structure. There's nothing oh, barring yeah, the power absolutely. structure from being part of these communities. Right. Because the power structure isn't a guy or even, you know, four people. It's it's large. Yeah. And like you say, large parts of those people are the same kind of people who are going to go to Wall Street bets on Reddit. In fact, more likely because they work in the industry. So, of course, it's going to be full of people like that. But even so, it's just really like. People are like, oh, the hedge funds made this happen. I'm like, do you know how hard it is to make if the they, internet do if anything? If they could, if they could, they would have done it on stuff far more safe than GameStop. Yeah. To be sure. Now, what I will say is we definitely see uh, things that rhyme, uh, as they say. History doesn't repeat, it rhymes. And we yes. definitely see that, right? Uh, Gamer it's, like, Gage, it's like poetry. It yeah, rhymes, yeah. like as George Lucas described. <laughs> right. Uh, Gamergate definitely had echoes in things like the Me Too movement and the Trump campaign. And, you know, there were all kinds of other things that had similar aspects later of what was a very specific niche event on on the Internet. And if you're not aware, Gamergate was was this movement on Twitter to shame people. And it was supposedly about ethics and journalism. And it was, you know, a lot of flame wars. Uh, and we've certainly seen more of that kind of thing. So maybe we see similar situations crop up from other ways than just Wall Street bets on Reddit. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know, because Honestly, the stock market's a pretty robust system, and it takes a very unique event to drive something against the way the market has worked. That said, if they are going to do anything, and my guess is it's going to be the players in the industry, not the government doing anything, but if they are going to do anything, it's going to be a thing that says, okay, the specific way that the value of GameStop stock got out of whack from its real valuation was caused by this. We're going to put a break on that. Because we've seen that before. We we had similar situations where computer trading caused crazy valuations because the algorithm just kept buying, 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 and they put breaks in. They're like, oh, when that happens, we stop trading. Well, yeah. with GameStop, stopping trading, which they did a few times on Wall Street. I'm not talking about stopping trading the apps. I mean, on the actual New York Stock Exchange, yeah. they stopped trading. Uh, that didn't work. So I 
can imagine that the exchanges probably come up with something like, okay, when we see this kind of behavior in the future, we, we might do this uh, as a safety valve. Where do we think the Robin Hood of it all comes in? Because well, okay. because yeah. that because that's something that's fascinating. It obviously has a tremendous foothold, at least in the culture of that community, the the retail uh, investor community. Uh, but boy, did that go south quick for them uh, when when they they stopped trading on these meme stocks. Yeah, and and interestingly, stopped. Uh, it went south for them, but not TD Ameritrade or Schwab or any yeah. of the dozens of other apps that did pretty much the exact same thing. I I think it was because Robinhood was the face of this, uh, because Robinhood had been putting itself out there as we're on your side, and then suddenly they weren't on your side. Yeah. Except that's not really what was going on. What was going on, and I know you're all experts in in uh, 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 payment for order flow and short selling and call options. Now we all are. But, it's it's but, great, man. I I'm I'm loving the fact that I I know I didn't I didn't know I knew so so many politics experts and <laughs> virologists and stock experts. It's right, amazing, yeah, man. Yeah, all you uh, people have secret. But before talent. last week, uh, a lot of people didn't know about those things and. And so it shouldn't be a shock that like, oh, wait, there's more to Robin Hood than just we won't charge you. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people understood, oh, I guess they're making their money off interest, right? They're, they they hold the money that you have in your account, you know, from dividends or that you're waiting on for trading and they make money off that. And they do. But the big money was coming from that order flow thing where essentially what happens is there's a two day settlement time when you buy a stock. Because we're still using, you know, mid 20th century methods of stock trading. And that two day settlement time gives people a chance to take advantage and make some money. So if you have 100 different orders from 100 different people for GameStop stock at $10 and this company, Citadel Securities, says, well, I can get, I've got it for $9.20, uh, I'll sell it to you. We'll take advantage of the two day settlement to make this all flush out. And then, you know, I'll give you a little cut of what I make on it. Who's the wiser? Well, suddenly everybody's the wiser because people are like, wait a minute, how are they doing this? And when you drive GameStop stock up to $400, suddenly that little two-day settlement situation doesn't work out so well because you can't get the discount. Now you've got Robinhood Chief Executive Officer Vlad Tenev saying, why are we doing two-day settlements? He's like, the whole reason that we had to stop trading was because there are regulatory requirements that we have cash reserves that can cover all of the outstanding trades on our platform. And we had so many outstanding trades on our platform because of this two-day settlement uh, that we needed to raise billions more money. And the only way we could make sure we didn't violate the law was to slow down trading until we got the money. They have got the money. Now they let the trading go. But I think Vlad Tenev is, is bringing up a good question, which is, why don't we have real-time trading? We certainly have the technology to do it. Yeah. Maybe that's what the exchanges should do is, I know it will cut out the business of, you know, uh, proof of order flow or, or payment overflow or whatever it is. I, I suddenly came blanking on what it is, but it'll cut out that business, but we won't run into this problem again. Can we talk a little bit, this is a little bit off the beaten path, but it certainly is in the technology sector. How Vlad Tenev specifically, again, I mean, 
Number one, you never want to be the main character on Twitter, and that man has spent a couple days as the main character on Twitter. But he's done a fairly aggressive job, both in traditional media and on, you know, in, in, in the language in which much of his audience speaks, or at least much of the influencers that his audience follow speak, and that's on the internet, including doing a big thing with, like, Elon Musk on Clubhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Which... I, I I wonder whether or not that sentence will age past you know the next four months. But uh, what what do you think of 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 how he's tried to control a fairly out of control narrative by using some of these same internet platforms that have spun it up so hot? Yeah, he's pretty savvy. Uh, I, you know, I'll give him definitely a, a solid B. Uh, he hasn't mastered it. It's not a like, oh my gosh, he he turned the crowd a, a, a away from you know the, no. they put all their pitchforks down. No, but they still hate. He's done a pretty serviceable job of understanding the culture he's addressing and using tools that are likely to help them understand what he's doing without actually backing off of what he has to do. I, I'm, I've i been surprised at, at how the tempers have cooled a little bit. Uh, it's the internet. It's Twitter. You're never going to have them all cooled, but I, I'd say he's done decent. What do you think of Clubhouse? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know yet. Uh, the, the main thing that makes me think Clubhouse is for real and is the next TikTok, because... <laughs> That's how fast we're moving. Yeah. Uh, uh, is that Clubhouse is really popular in China right now. Nothing gets to be popular in China unless there's a Chinese version or it's so hot that it got out of the gate too fast for the party to shut down. Yeah. And the fact that Clubhouse is like like uh, 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 cl- Clubhouse invites for sale is trending on Weibo in China tells me like, all right, there's something for real here. I don't have to understand it to know that it is definitely for real. Wait, can I sell my Clubhouse invites in China? Can I make money on this? I don't, you know, I don't know if a U.S. invite works in China or not. It might. You you might be able to make some yuan. Ooh, I'll tell you what. I might, I might have to. I might have to shake this up. It, I this is the biggest invite craze I've seen since Gmail. I will say that. Like people are horny for Bigger these invites. Peach? No, not Peach. Peach was Peach was a beautiful <laughs> weekend though. That was a it great. Really was. Oh man, the the Peach weekend was was something something special. Yeah, I don't I don't know what to make of it. I I got an invite and I never opened it, <laughs> but I've got, I got an invite. I opened it. I'm in there. I feel like all the people that I was yelling at in 2007 about Twitter, which is, I don't know what to do with it. And yes. I'm sure if I yes. really tried, I could figure it out. But, uh, I, yeah, I, also, I, I was, I was definitely the same way with Twitter. I got a Twitter. Yeah. I, I didn't ha- I didn't do Jack on the account for like a year. And then I came back and started using it when I, I grokked it more. I also don't like to talk to people I don't know. I, it's, I, I never like to do like, you know, voice chat on video games, et cetera. So it may just not be for me. I wonder whether or not we're just the worst case scenario for it. Yeah. Because we make our living talking to people <laughs> and we get to control it and we do it exactly how we want it. Right. And we're, we're, we're not the target. You're right. Uh, but then again, uh, other famous people are on there. You know, maybe, maybe I don't know. 
That's weird. All right, enough about Clubhouse. Uh, let's talk about Bezos. Uh, that that you know kind of came out of nowhere at a left field. My initial thought is a for Amazon. I don't think this really changes much. Uh, Amazon is like three or four Fortune 500 companies taped together, and one could totally crap out, and they would probably just keep chugging along. But I have a fairly myopic lens of uh, leadership in Silicon Valley and what I think is going to be a fairly crucial year of antitrust stuff. Amazon, to me, has the biggest target on their back for antitrust, specifically for their store. I I could understand if Bezos is like, I I just don't want to be the guy on television in Congress. I'd rather somebody else do it. If if they want to haul me in for a specific thing, then okay. But for the rest of it, I, I somebody else can be leading the war effort. I'm not going to say that the antitrust investigations have nothing to do with this, but they have almost <laughs> nothing to do with this. Okay. Uh, we we have a little pandemnesia uh, about this, and I had forgotten myself when I first saw the news that Jeff Bezos had stepped away from day-to-day affairs at Amazon in 2019. And everybody was talking about, oh, well, is the next step that he's going to step down as CEO and who's he going to give it to? Uh, Is it going to be Wilkie? Is it going to be Jesse? Is it going to be somebody else? And then the pandemic hit. And the big news in March of 2020 was Jeff Bezos steps back into the day-to-day. Uh, Jeff Bezos took over the reins again and said, I'm going to run this ship because this is way different than anything we were all expecting. And and I have the vision uh, to figure out how to steer Amazon through this. And and he was right. Amazon did great. Uh, Now he's going back to what he had planned to do probably in 2020 before this all hit. Uh, and and he's just stepping into it a little faster. And instead of stepping away from the day to day and then naming the successor, he had already figured out who the successor was. Wilkie uh, resigned back in August. It was Jesse. Jesse might not be an exact clone of Bezos, but he runs in the same style. He does the same approach. Amazon Web Services or AWS is the profit center of Amazon, and that's what Jesse was was running. Uh, he ran it in almost the same way that Bezos ran the larger company. So it's plug and play. Uh, Bezos is going to stay on as executive chair and be able to come up with new ideas for Amazon. I fully expect him to Larry Ellison this thing. Like he's going to still be around. He's going to have ideas. He's going to have pet projects. uh, But Jassy has to deal with the day to day. And that makes Bezos feel better. And don't forget, Bezos can go play with the Washington Post and his rockets at Blue Origin, too. Uh, He might do a little Bill Gates because he's got a couple of charitable foundations involved with environmentalism and homeless families. Uh, But this frees up Jeff Bezos to pursue those other things and not have to do the boring stuff, uh, which now Andy Jesse will be in charge of. And like I said, Jesse is almost the same person as Bezos. So Bezos can trust that like, oh yeah, it's totally going to be in good hands. In fact, if anything, it'll get better because look what he did with AWS. Does it say anything that, that it was the AWS leader and not somebody from, you know, the, their their logistics or or store or anything like that like like was 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 the other uh, possible suitor uh, from something other than the AWS department? Yeah, I'm I'm a little unclear why Wilkie resigned. He was the worldwide consumer guy. Uh, I he may just have gotten tired of it all. 
Uh, Jesse, I think, always would have been the choice, though, because I mean, Jesse's there is there is there is a corporate culture of if you're not if everyone knows you're up for the big job and you and you're not going to get the big job, then you walk away because you don't yeah. want to unless you want to be in that position that you're in right there forever. What, but I guess what I'm saying is is not why he walked away, but why why they picked Jesse over Wilkie. I don't know particularly, but I definitely know that Jesse was probably the front runner the whole way because he's the most successful. He's a Harvard MBA, not an engineer. So it's not like, Ooh, now you're going to have an engineer running retail. It's like, no, you've got a marketing business guy who did great with engineering. There's no reason to believe he won't do just as well or better with the entire operation. And AWS won't get screwed up on his watch because he knows what to look for and make sure whoever takes over there will do that. Well, as all also. That is something that, that people should understand, especially for a non tech audience it is important to understand with amazon that even after the entire economy died and they literally just ran the world for 2020 in terms of everybody getting everything they they uh-huh. exploded that the way that they make their money is not in any of that in any of the logistics in any of the money that you give them in any of the prime stuff that's a gigantic amount of money but it is dwarfed by AWS. It is dwarfed by the fact that every time you log on to the internet, you are interacting with an Amazon server. They are selling the cement that makes the internet you use. Yeah, cloud services, which is what runs the internet, runs the web, uh, what runs a lot of companies, uh, intranets as well. Uh, AWS has 33% market share. Number two is Microsoft with Azure at 18%. And then beyond that, you're talking about Google at 9% and everybody else. Like uh, that that may not sound as dominant as, as Google's 90% market share in search, but it's dominant. Uh, and it's an industry that didn't exist until AWS came along. Yeah. They, they essentially invented this. Somebody would have invented it anyway. It was, it was too obvious, but AWS pioneered. Let's say pioneered rather than invented uh, and and got well ahead of everybody else. And Andy Jassy was the guy who started that division yeah. at, at Amazon. So, yeah, it's, this this is you could sell everything at Amazon that isn't AWS and have a more profitable company uh, is my expectation. $50 billion run rate just for AWS. Yeah, because if you can maintain those servers, and it's why every once in a while there's like a weird thing where, where Netflix and Twitter and a bunch of other sites go down, and it's because somebody left a left a tab open at a at a server farm in Virginia <laughs> for AWS. Sort of, yeah. Like, yeah, like, and that's why it's regional too, because it's yeah. like, oh, the AWS data center had a bad rollout in Raleigh, so you know it knocked out the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, uh, but yeah, it is, it is, it is fascinating. So you don't think that that it, it, you know this whatever is going to happen with this antitrust thing is any any part of the larger radar for Amazon. I doubt. I, I don't see any reason why this would make it better or worse for Amazon. Certainly, Bezos doesn't want to do it. So you know that could be part of the like, ooh, thank goodness, now I'm going to step away now. Uh, but but yeah, I mean they could still call him. He's still executive chair. He's still part of the company. Uh, if they want to call him, they'll call him. Jesse, sure. uh, you know, knows everything that's going on, you know, so they'll probably call him too. But honestly, it's the lawyers that are going to have to deal with the actual investigation. And those guys are still there. 
All right, you want to hear more totally unfounded uh, uh, antitrust uh, uh, observations in the world of tech? Yeah, bring it. Google. Google cancels Project Loon. They look like they might already be scaling down Stadia. They might repackage that. That that was their online gaming thing. Uh, I, I don't know if this is necessarily an antitrust thing it, or them looking at at you know the the less the not quite as explosive AdSense dollars that really have powered that company and saying, you want to know what? Let's we, we've had a, a grand tradition under former leadership of taking a lot of big swings and seeing what the next big thing is. But we got to start checking on those swings a, a little bit, a little bit more. We got to We got to get a little leaner. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I think you're on the right track. I don't think antitrust still has a lot to do with it, though. Uh, if anything, if antitrust had a lot to do with it, you'd want to be expanding things and saying, look, we're in lots of businesses. We're not yeah. just, you know, we're, we're not just dominant in this one. But antitrust is a cost. I think that's what Google looks at antitrust as is like, oh, OK, we're going to have this expense uh, because we'll be fighting these antitrust, uh, you know, and we might have to might have to take a hit in Australia over that news deal, whatever. Uh, so, oh, yeah. You know, here. Um, explain that to people a, that haven't heard that haven't heard. Well, about that. yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain in a short amount of time. But essentially, uh, Australia and Google are. Uh, brinksmanship negotiating the idea of paying publishers uh, to have their news linked to. Uh, this is also something that's been going on in the European Union. In the European Union, the fight's been going on longer. And so they've kind of brinksmanship to themselves out into figuring out varying ways of, of having agreements that allow everybody to say they won. In Australia, we're now getting the the we're to the point where the Australian government is saying you have to pay for everything, even just a link. You know, even if you don't use letters, if you have a link, you got to pay for it. If it's a news organization and Google's saying, well, if you make us do that, we'll quit Australia. We'll leave Australia and we'll take our all the Vegemite you have with us. And that'll <laughs> be the end of Australia. We, you know, and neither side really mean it. Uh, it's it's no love lost, honestly. Uh, Microsoft's over there cheering, going, yes, please leave Australia. Bing will become the number one search engine in Australia. But uh, this is all a way to position themselves to get the best deal, which I imagine they will eventually agree to. But there's a cost there, right? Because you have to be willing to call their bluff, which means you might have to shut down uh, your search engine in Australia for a few days. Uh, you certainly are going to have to pay a lot of lobbyists. You're going to have to pay a lot of lawyers. So the reason I even bring it up was because of that. Like, well, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before before we get back to the larger point, I want to. I have one more specific Australia question. Yeah, yeah. Does that mean that it would just be kind of like it was in in China, where you could still go to like Google dot com if you were able to get through the firewall, but but Google you know dot cn or whatever like wasn't uh, uh wasn't available or forwarded Maybe? somewhere else. I mean. Google didn't leave, didn't say, uh, give a plan of how they would uh, implement this. Yeah. Uh, it could also, Google could also say, we'll just block Australian IP addresses that, from accessing. Yeah, that was and, the other side. The other side is, or do they go full, yeah. like, scorched earth and be like, no, we're blocking all and Australians. That's, that's why you like, know like, this you, is a you, need, you need strategy. a VPN to get yeah. your Gmail. They, they didn't issue a white paper on how they would implement this. They just said, well, fine, we'll leave Australia. Well, maybe uh, we'll leave. Maybe yeah, we'll that leave. Could, that could mean all kinds of things. Yeah. All right. But but you're, but but the, the larger point stands, which is these are costs. 
Yes. So to get back to your original question about Alphabet, Google's parent company, uh, and 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 the idea of you know cutting costs by shutting down Project Loon, uh, Google itself shutting down the game studio part of Stadia. Stadia, the service, is still perking along just just fine. Uh, but after a year, that's a that's a bad down, that's a bad sign though. No, it's not. Uh, it's it's actually it's a fiscally responsible sign because. What, what Google was doing with the game studio was saying, we want to make this platform we think will be great, and we want to we want to profit off of it, which is sensible. What they're saying now is, we've decided not to spend that money. Uh, maybe that's where antitrust does figure in. Like We'll probably have another antitrust fight there if we got too successful. But also, it just is easier for us to make the money off the other game companies than it is to try to also develop games, which is an entirely different business. Granted, it's still Google's kind of mania. I mean, of, it is, it is the same thing, business, And then a year later though. saying, oh, wait, that's not working out. But it's also sensible. It's to the say, same business. Oh, it's not working out. Let's, Pla- let's, platforms let's not have exclusives. Platforms have exclusives. So oh, I, sure. And they could, they'll still have exclusives, but they just won't make them. I mean, that was their plan. I mean, right? a- yeah. I, Amazon also has their own game streaming service that has its own game studio. Yep. Microsoft owns game studios. Yep. I wouldn't be shocked to see Google buy a game studio because Google looked at what Microsoft and Amazon did, which is buy game studios and said, uh, hold my beer. Let me start one from scratch. Now, they hired really good people. Don't get me wrong, but that's a lot harder to do uh, than to just by somebody that already makes stuff and has known properties. So you don't think that this is a very bad sign for Stadia in the way that it's it's being portrayed by some? Listen, I don't think it's a great sign for Stadia. Don't get me wrong. It's not like, oh, this means Stadia is going to do great. But everybody has Google bias of, oh, all they do is shut things down. And the fact is, no, they don't shut things down. They start too many projects, which makes it look like they shut a lot of things down because they start too many projects. It's another example of Google starting a project and realizing it wasn't going to work out. But that doesn't mean they're going to shut down Stadia. And you can jump to the conclusion they're going to just shut down Stadia. And if eventually it's reasonable for them to shut down Stadia, you can jump up and down and say you were right. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't. don't- yeah, I don't I, think they start Stadia with the idea of shutting it down. And I don't think shutting down the game studio is particularly indicative that cloud gaming itself, which is taking off in multiple companies, is going to be a bad idea for Google. No, I, I don't think they are going to shut it down. I would actually back the play of uh, your friend and mine, Bryce Neshkom Castillo, who writes a great video games uh, email called Video Games with Bryce. And his thought was, they're not going to shut it down, but they might refocus the business to be a like EA streaming powered by Google or powered by Stadia. That that's they not would- even new. Like Bryce is absolutely right. They they are already offering that. Like yes. Stadia has always been. We're going to run Stadia ourselves, but also white label it. Yes. Uh, and, but and but that that, that, that might would be, be a the- more reasonable thing yeah. is to say, you know what, we're making more off the white label. Uh, maybe maybe we don't do the Stadia version ourselves. But honestly, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, Apple, to a certain extent, NVIDIA, they're all doing this. And it looks like it's a service that isn't a flash in the pan. So it would be a huge failure if Google doesn't have a product of their own that is beyond white label. I, 
I'm really skeptical at the idea that that they just pull out of Stadia altogether without giving it a good long run. I mean, but what is a good long run on I'm talking Apple five, schedule? six years, you know, unless unless we see NVIDIA, Microsoft, I mean, everybody schedule. else pull out, too. I'm, I'm talking like five or six years or more. Yeah, I, I, I do wonder. I, 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 I genuinely I'm I, I, I genuinely wonder about where their 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 priorities are. Uh, and and whether or not under I mean every, you know, again everybody has this idea that uh, Google's dumb and they just start things and kill them. To, no, to I know I don't, I don't I don't think I know that. you I know you yeah. don't, but that that attitude is out there and it's like no they don't. Uh, they start a lot of things with the intention of seeing if they're going to work, and then they kill the things that aren't working. The only thing that's different with Google and everybody else is they do it a lot more publicly and they do it a lot more often. And. They, you know, to their credit, sometimes create things that people really, really like and yeah. they don't view as successful enough and they kill it. And it Gmail it, seems obvious right now, but it was not. It was just one of those other wild projects that, that Google had started back in the day. Yeah. I mean, they did kill Inbox. I loved Inbox. Yeah, I know. That hurts you. I'm sorry. Inbox Inbox is great. Reader was great. They deserve yeah. this reputation. Oh, but they what deserve they were it. doing with Inbox was exactly what they did. I'm convinced from the very beginning they were like, let's try these features out and see how they work. And then we'll shut it down and bring all those features to Gmail that we think work, which is exactly what they did. But then that would make the argument for Stadia. Let's just make sure that we see what this is, and then we'll just kill our version of it sure. so we can exclusively I mean, white label it. That's not impossible. It's a thing that Google does. I just don't think that that market is going to be in is not going to work for Google. I think they're going to have a valuable product in Stadia. So it doesn't make sense to me that they would kill it off. Mm. Well, uh, let's I'm get, glad. but I, I, I didn't get to finish my point, finish which is, your point, finish your, point. which is state. So, so alphabet itself killing off project loon, uh, ignores the fact that alphabet also, very, very full steam ahead on Waymo, which is actually the leading American or North American autonomous car company. Very full steam ahead on Verily, which is a, a health services. And there's a few other of those alphabet bets that you don't see in the headlines because they're just perking away working. So I think it's the same thing with Alphabet and Killing Project Loon, which is, you know what, we've, we've got to cut back. Because uh, we know the the money train isn't going to last forever, uh, and we have to draw a line somewhere. And Project Loon, which was looking like it might eventually make money, was going to take too long to make money, so we're killing it. Same reason they got rid of the Stadia Game Studios; just going to take too long to make the money. All right, uh, man. I'll tell you what. I, I don't know if I have any other tech questions for you. Maybe. Oh, oh, oh. The 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 uh, uh, this. Well, it'll run after you've talked about it on. DTNS with me on Thursday because we're recording this on 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 Wednesday. But uh, the uh, Apple Hyundai news is is there actual news? It's maybe it's a rumor. Well, uh, the the latest thing that we talked about earlier in the week was Ming Chi Kuo, who's very reliable on being able to say what he thinks Apple will do. Uh, said that it looks like Hyundai would provide some of the services to build a car for Apple, that GM and PSA, which makes Peugeot, uh, would also be involved somehow. And it would be like 2024, 2025, before you'd actually see a car hit the market because it's such a complex situation. But what's going on is that uh, Apple 
is not going to be making the iPhone the way or making the car the way they make the iPhone, which is they design everything. They source the parts and then they give it to Foxconn or Wistron and say, build it Uh, with a car. You got to have people making the parts for you that know know how to how to do it. Uh, You don't get to design all those parts yet. Uh, it's a much more complex situation. And so Hyundai would be providing a lot of that. So the most recent thing is from CNBC. This is their exclusive report that uh, the deal is close and it would uh, involve the Kia assembly plant in West Point, Georgia. Also, yeah. it would and be then, uh, designed. Uh, Dong Ilbo, uh, a Korean newspaper, says that they might sign the deal February 17th. Is there anything special on that? They just want to wait until after 17. Valentine's Day, or yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to have to, to take them out to those overpriced restaurants. Exactly. Look, it's the same food, honey. We can just yeah. go two days afterward. I don't know why. And, you're and Kia, Kia would be doing the U.S. Uh, operation for Apple. Kia is owned by Hyundai, so it's still Hyundai at the top. Yeah. Uh, but then the other, the other element of it was that they would be designed to not have a driver, fully autonomous. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Uh, that's been kicking around. That there will certainly be autonomy built into these cars. Uh, no, that, yeah, no, 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 no. That, that is that is that is the CNBC report. Is that that's is, the part yeah. that Apple is going to to deliver? Is the the interior design, the way the car looks, the entertainment system, obviously with Apple CarPlay and all the autonomous features, the autonomous platform. Uh, what Hyundai would probably be delivering mostly is the battery. This will be an electric car. Uh, and Hyundai has an EGV platform uh, that they've been touting since the end of last year. And uh, so, so yeah, there might be, you know, cars that would be driverless, but you could also describe a Tesla that way right now. And most people drive them themselves, even though it has autopilot. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure what that means yet. It seems pretty foggy to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the one, I'm trying to find the exact wording on it, but uh, the thing that I saw floating around was that it would be designed to not have space for a driver and would focus specifically on last mile things. So it would almost be like a fleet vehicle. I don't see Ming-Chi Kuo saying anything like that. So until I see somebody more reliable uh, putting that out there, I'm I'm quite skeptical. Uh, Um, There we go. Tom Merritt, big uh, 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 Schwarzenegger arm. Uh, uh, Wall Street bets, uh, the big other arm, clasped hands together, screw CNBC. Diamond hands. (laughs) Diamond hands. Remain strong. To the moon. (laughs) Tom Merritt, Daily Tech News Show. Uh, uh, Thank you so much, man, as always. Thanks, man. If you like guests like Tom and you want to keep them coming on this show, then the best way that you can support this program for free is to thank our guests when they do a great job. Tom always does a great job, so it's easy. You can find him on Twitter at Ace, A-C-E, letter D, T-E-C-T, Ace Detect. Yes, he knows it's a weird Twitter handle. He doesn't care. That's how you spell it. A-C-E-D-T. E-C-T. Of course, if you'd like to support the podcast through material means, you can do so at uh, PayPal for one-time donations. PayPal.me slash payjury, P-A-Y-J-U-R-Y. Hi, doctor. Uh, you can hit me with a dollar on Venmo. Who hit me with a dollar on Venmo? Let's see. 
Let's see. You, you, you can just go to Justin-Young-20. But the last person to hit me with a dollar on Venmo was Daniel. Daniel. Daniel uh, uh, F. paid me $1.99 and said, so you can buy dot zero 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 two six eight sevenths of a Bitcoin. So I'm very excited for that. I'm very excited for that. Uh, 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 please go ahead and keep sending me a dollar on Venmo. You can also hit me with anything that you want via the P.O. Box. P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. Uh, but it is takepoliticsseriously.com where you can get the bonus content, including our $3 Club 2 bonus podcast a week. You get that plus your name read at the end of the show if you're in the Titanic. $10 tier up to and including I love you TNT, Dr. G, The Gen, Kathy Mack, Headphones, Neil, Onward to Georgia, Captain Bunzo, Jay Sulu, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, but what happened to Tex? Get a bucket and a mop. Cujo, Idris, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley Steven, Justin Egan, Dotcom Junkie, Diana Sunny Smiles, Tempest Fugit, Jason with uh, Magnolia Delta Credit Card Processing, D Laser, Hashtagus, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Archie, Darren, Olin, and Angela, DL, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, Just Another Pilot, Jim, D. Really, Frozen Summers, and Andrew. Again, you can, I know, Doctor, you can be a part of that group. If only you head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. We got a great. Uh, a week of podcasting for you next week. We're going to do a deep dive into the California recall, not only the one that is ongoing, but also the one that passed back in 2003. We've got the world's foremost expert on that subject, and I will be broadcasting on the road. We are in the process of relocating to Austin, Texas, and uh, I'm going to be down there looking at houses for at least a week, so that is where the shows will emanate from next week, the next time I speak to you on this RSS feed. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics, but this is the only program that talks about Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.